and hope you have a Bible. And if you do, would love for you to open up with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll begin reading at the end of that chapter in just a little bit. Uh, today, we are going to be taking one last look at the story of David. Uh, it may prove to be our most important look yet. Nonetheless, I think it's going to be the most relevant and the, the subject matter that I think uh, we can most connect to when it comes to the life of David. Uh, a few weeks ago, we uh, had a, we, in our most recent study of David, we took last week off to talk about uh, a different subject, but a few weeks ago in our most recent study of David, we centered our conversation around uh, David's display and really how David uh, defined and embodied what it means to be spiritually mature, to have a spiritual maturity. And I, I think this is a word that uh, probably because of how we differently define maturity. We probably would uh, define spiritual maturity in different ways. Uh, a lot of times uh, we define maturity uh, as uh, based on how we see things. And, and, and a lot of times we use the word maturity as, a, as another word for serious, uh, which uh, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, the word maturity really means uh, reaching or living from one's full personal Potential, But again, I think a lot of times we hear maturity and we think, well, they're just serious or they just take things more serious. And, and not that that is, doesn't have a place, uh, but when I first started ministry, um, I was worried. And I think a lot of others were worried around me, probably more than I was worried, uh, that, uh, you know, hey, I'm young, you know, is my maturity level uh, going to be where it needs to be? And really that anxiety was, was more about did I look a certain way and did I carry myself a certain way? That, that's not what maturity means. Uh, maturity has little to do with appearance and presentation at all. Uh, maturity has everything to do, as we learned, about character. Maturity has everything to do with character. So when we think about spiritual maturity, again, we're tempted to confuse it with how one looks or how one acts in a particular place. Uh, but the story of David is all about how the true gauge of one's relationship with God and connection with God uh, has little to nothing to do with how one looks or appears in a particular place, a setting uh, that might be ideal. When one's under the spotlight, that is not the best way to measure uh, how mature someone is. Actually, spiritual health and spiritual maturity is all about the condition and overflow of the heart. What is in the heart and what comes out of the heart. And David's story really is all about teaching Israel and teaching anyone who reads the Bible uh, that God is not interested in and God is not impressed with mere looks. God's approval and God's applause is not earned by how we gesture or how we posture. God's approval and God's applause is based on the condition of our hearts and the possession within our hearts. If there's one overarching theme of the book of First uh, and Second Samuel as a whole, the, the book that David's story is contained in, uh, it's a thousand times this. It's the story of how spiritual maturity and spiritual well-being is measured by the condition of and the overflow of one's heart. The book begins with uh, a story about Hannah. Hannah was a woman who was uh, not beloved by many and, and was actually overlooked by her own husband. Hannah was thought to be uh, unworthy and, and and not chosen by God for great things. Yet God answered her prayer and gave her a son, Samuel. Samuel would be the next judge of Israel. But in the meantime, the judges that ruled Israel at the current time, they were corrupt. They looked holy. They sounded holy. They dressed the right way. They did the right things when everyone was looking, but they were corrupt at their hearts. 
Yet God raised up Samuel and replaced Eli in his house to rule the land. Nobody would have imagined that Hannah would be chosen by God, especially against Eli and his own sons. Yet that's what happens when we judge everything uh, based on how it looks. And that's what happens when we determine the worth of something by how it appears. Then you come to the story of Saul and how he was lauded for his looks and his king-like demeanor. His mannerisms fit the bill. Saul was chosen to be king because he looked like a king and he acted like a king. And he, you know, from the presentation perspective, he was a king, yet God rejects Saul because Saul's heart, as it would be exposed, was full of all the wrong things and, and was not reflecting a true spiritual mature person. And he was replaced by, or he was chosen to be replaced by, a young shepherd Boy, all because God looks on the heart, not anything else. And that's so contrary to our nature, isn't it? We look on appearance. We look at how things seem to be and how things appear to be. But God is not fooled by. God is not impressed by how things look. God sees the heart. Of course, the shepherd boy was David, and we've learned how his one desire was knowing God, and his one true destiny was finding himself and living life as God's child. Above everything else he might would be, he wanted to be a child of God. And we've read the stories and we've heard the stories uh, about how he was more mature than most others in the land. He had a spirituality that was unrivaled by those around him based on the purity and the sincerity of his heart. We concluded that maybe what denoted his spiritual maturity more than anything else was the way he handled the power that was promised to him and that was given to him. Again, this was even more emphasized by contrast when you see how badly Saul handled his power. And we did a whole sermon on this, uh, but, which you can go listen to. But the whole idea was that one of the greatest marks of spiritual maturity it's how we handle the power and the authority and the influence we possess. And we saw that David was reluctant at first. He refused to take from Saul what God had given to Saul. He knew it would be his eventually, and he was admirable. He had an honorable characteristic that few others would possess in his position. Rather than trying to take from Saul, he waited for God to give it to him. And even more bold and more brilliant uh, was how David handled himself when he finally became king. Immediately after he was given the throne, he did not seek to exercise his privilege over the people of Israel. Rather, he did not claim executive privilege. He did not try to take advantage of the throne. He began to earnestly and sincerely consider what his responsibility was and what his stewardship would be as the king of God's people. Second Samuel 5 told us that when the elders came to make him king, David said, no, 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 let me first do something for you. He made a covenant with them. I will take the crown in a minute. First though, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. I'm gonna promise you that I am not going to rule over you as a tyrant. I'm not gonna take advantage of you like most kings would. I am your servant more than anything else. I am in this position to serve the people of God. And, and David did exactly what the New Testament says is quintessential Christianity. He would put others before himself, even when it would have been easier not to, even when most would have not blamed him to not do. David, you're the king. David, have you ever heard of royal privilege? You have the right to do what you want to do. But David was thinking spiritually. No wonder 
God said that David was a man after his own heart. No wonder God gave David the throne because he was such a good steward and proved to be such a good steward of the power that he was given. When we celebrate David, when the Bible celebrates David, when God celebrates David uh, and commends David, it's on this basis. It's not, uh, it's not all there is to celebrate and commend about David. There's actually something else though that makes that is equally as reflective and indicative of his spiritual maturity. Yes, how he handled his power is a remarkable thing, an admirable thing, a thing that most of us would never even think to do, but we learned is what we all should think to do and consider when we are in a position of power and influence and all of us have influence and power of some capacity over those around us. But there's something else that is commendable about David and something else that the Bible celebrates about David and actually is on the opposite end of the spectrum of this conversation. Uh, Not only does how one handle power reflect their spiritual maturity, but also how one handles the loss of power reflects our hearts. How we handle being removed from power, how we handle losing access to power is equally as revealing and maybe even carries more weight in determining our true connection to God and our true spiritual health. And ultimately, that is where our conversation is going today. In the same way that we get a true idea of someone's accountability to God by how they use their power, we get a true look at someone's confidence in God by how they lose their power, the grace with which they fall or handle defeat. Now, this is a reality that none of us want to talk about. None of us want to imagine a world where we are not always on the incline. We are not always gaining and acquiring more power and influence and and all the good things that this world gives us. None of us want to admit this reality is one that we find ourselves in, but it's something we are familiar with. It is the reality that we live in. In our story today, we're going to be reminded of something that few of us actually need to be reminded of because we also are, we're already so familiar with it. Life rarely goes as planned. If there's going to be one lesson today, you're going to see it from the story of David, which seemed as if it was going in every positive direction possible. We're going to learn, and you don't need this reminder because we know this, right? You don't need a preacher to tell you this or a church to tell you this. You know this. Life rarely goes as planned. It's good to have plans. The Bible actually encourages us to make plans. Plans are great, but reality is greater. Not that it's better all the time, but reality in terms of the force that it moves with has a greater ability to take us in that direction. Reality is always greater. It takes precedent. It always wins. We can make plans all day long, but whatever reality brings us, that is what we will live in. Things don't always go as as we plan, right? because of the things that other people do. Sometimes we feel as if we've done everything right and somebody else comes in and messes things up. Someone on a national level, on a communal level, on a personal level, we made the plans, we did the right stuff, we prepared, we saved, we worked hard and somebody else blindsided us. And maybe that makes us a little bit upset, a little bit bitter and we'll talk about that. We did what we could do and in other times we dropped the ball. In other situations, we may have done the work, but also we made some mistakes. We made some uh, missteps along the way and we made things go in a different direction. At the end of the day, because plans don't always go the way we would hope them to, because life doesn't always go the way we plan it to go. At the end of the day, this means that some of our dreams won't come true. 
as much as we don't want to deal with this and, and, and admit this or you know, acknowledge this, some of our dreams won't come true. Some of our dreams can't come true because of what has happened that cannot be undone or reversed. It means that the plans that we have for our personal lives or professional lives, they won't pan out like we would have imagined and had prepared for. Everybody, everyone takes the job or leaves the job expecting it to go according to a certain way. Nobody says I do at an altar believing that it will not result in happiness and a better life. But the reality is that not everybody gets into the school of their dreams. Not everybody gets that promotion. Not everyone has albums full of perfect smiles. We've all been there, right? Personally, relationally, professionally, our goals shift because reality shifts. There are people who dream of holding babies that never will get to. There are people who dream of growing old with a husband or wife that will never get to. There are people who hope that their second marriage or their third marriage will turn out better than the others, but they don't. There are people who dream of success, but they only face tons of challenges. There are people who dream of so much yet end up facing so much trouble. Financially, health circumstances just never go their way or don't go as they would have hoped them to go. We've all had to accept, and maybe we're still in denial. Sometimes it helps to, maybe this will help us admit it, some dreams won't come true. Some dreams cannot come true. And this is something that somebody, all of us needs to hear today, that admitting this is not losing faith. That admitting that some dreams are not gonna happen and some dreams cannot happen, admitting that is not giving up something. Admitting that is not losing faith. In a, in a lot of ways, in a major way, it takes tremendous faith to accept to embrace that maybe the pathway that God is taking you down is not what you planned for and not what you would have dreamed of and not what you prayed for. But it may just be where God wills you to go and it may be the secret, it may be the answer to you finding the true peace and joy that you're looking for. But admitting that and embracing that is first necessary. The thing is for a lot of us, especially if you're, if you're religious, if you're a Christian, uh, when things don't go the way we planned and prayed for, we can get angry, we can get bitter, and you can find somebody that would tell you that if you just believed more, if you just did more, maybe it would have worked out. And, and the way we believed, and maybe we still want to believe, even if things haven't went the way we thought they would go, a lot of us, we believe that God promised us and that God owes us and that we did all we knew to do. But the reality is, the dreams aren't coming true, and maybe they never will. And worst of all, it seems like so many around us are getting what they wanted, maybe their equivalent. How we answer this next question is so important for our spiritual maturity and our spiritual health, our mental health even, for us to take hold of what God has in store for us, for what God can do for us, we have got to deal with the tension that we so often find ourselves in when things are not going as we planned for them to go. We can live in denial, we can, admit, we can frustrate ourselves and overwhelm ourselves, or we can begin to allow God to shine his light into our darkness. So the way we answer this question is so important. What do you do when you realize your dreams cannot come true? What do you do when you realize that the dreams, the plans, 
they're not going to happen. We've been studying the life of David, and early on, David comes face to face with reality. How, what he was planning for, what he was preparing for, what he seemed destined for, actually was not going to happen the way he thought it would, the way he believed God promised him it would. When King Saul turned on David, suddenly David panicked, and as he was on the run, he made a very bad and costly decision that ultimately resulted in a whole village of priests losing their lives. Husbands, wives, children were all killed. David learned a valuable lesson that he would not really, uh, wouldn't really register until much later. In the meanwhile, David made some decisions that would undermine the dreams he set for himself. He would make some decisions that undermine the ideal he claimed to be living for. About 20 years after David became king, David is in his 50s. And he, because of a series of unfortunate events, David's in a slump. He's in a personal slump and one morning he sends his men off to war and David finds himself looking across the land from his kingly perch as he had the right to do. David sees a certain woman who the Bible says was purifying herself after uh, her time. He sees a certain woman and he inquires to his men to whom this woman belongs to, to, you know, what family she's a part of and, and who this woman is. And one of David's men says, that is one of your generals, that is Uriah's wife, 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 it's Uriah's wife, David. David was the king and he can't be told no, so he sends for her and he takes her without consent. They spend the night together. Maybe they spent many nights together, but they spent a night together and the story goes that she's pregnant. David says, I can fix this. He calls Uriah in from the field and he says, Uriah, you've done a great job off at the battle. Thank you for serving your country and serving me. You're one of my best friends. Go home, spend the night with your wife, have a good time, and I'll send you back to war tomorrow with some things for your brothers on the field. But Uriah was an honorable man. Uriah said, no, 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 David, I am not going to go and have a peaceful night in my own home while my men are suffering on the battlefield. So Uriah sleeps in the palace gates. He sleeps in the palace courtyard. He refuses to go home. And David, getting a little bit impatient, gets Uriah drunk and he winks at Bathsheba and he says, I'm sending your husband home. He is incapacitated. Make sure this fixes things. Uriah even in his inebriated state, is more honorable than David. He sleeps outside. He refuses to spend the night inside with his wife. And David says, I guess I'm going to have to get my hands dirty again. Didn't want to do this, but he sends a letter with, with Uriah. And he gives it to Joab on the battlefield. And Joab is ordered by the king to send Uriah out on the battlefield, on the front line. All the men draw back. Uriah is by himself. He is pummeled with arrows and he dies. David shifts the narrative. Oh, Uriah, an honorable man, died for his country. What an awful thing. The nation mourns. Bathsheba mourns. But David swoops in, the hero. Oh, the widow of Uriah, mourning and in need of someone to uh, take care of her. David swoops in and says, I'll do it. He marries her and announces to the nation that they're going to have a baby. David is applauded as the honorable king, doing the right thing always, but there were people behind the scenes that knew something wasn't right. David did not seem like himself. One of the most anonymous and spine-chilling verses in the entire Bible is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. If you'll look at that with me this morning, I just, just feel the gravity of this statement. 
When her, when her mourning or Bathsheba's mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. David thought nobody knew, but God knew. So God sends a prophet to David, Nathan the prophet, one of David's best friends at this point, he boldly confronts David and he tells David a parable. There was a rich man who took from another poor man, a man who had one little lamb who was going to be his Passover lamb. The rich man who had a whole farm of animals, whole, you know, whole crowd of lambs, took from the poor man his only lamb. What an unrighteous thing. What an ungodly thing to do. And David was incensed and he said, what kind of man would do that? Who is this man that we might serve him justice? And down in chapter 12, verse 7, Nathan famously says, You are the man, David. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. David, you could have just asked me for something, but you didn't. You let your family fall apart. You let your children suffer. We'll talk about that. And you thought it would fix things if you just found someone else and started a new family. And you thought you could fix the problem that you made with Uriah. And you thought you were in control. David, didn't you know? Haven't you learned this the hard way before? You could have just asked me for help. But you didn't. He says, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed with the sword of the people of Ammon. David, what have you done? So in this moment, God's conviction gets to David and David allows the law of God to break him. He mourns for days and Nathan tells David the brokenness was only beginning. Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. And David is reminded of his relationship with God in this moment. Because for a very short season, David played God. David pulled strings. He called this guy for help. He took things into his own hands. But the David that we knew before that, and the David that really has always been there, was a David that never confused himself with God. A David that realized that he was a king. He was not the king. In this moment, he forgot that. He had a lapse of that. David does not try to argue with the consequences that may come from this. He does not pray them away. At this point, he knew what he did and he knew that what would happen next would be the consequences he would deserve or he was deserving of. And, and, and I want to talk about how he handles the next season of his life because it actually reveals how he actually grew in faith and got more confident in God as a result. So years go by, about five, six years go by, uh, and nothing has happened. Nothing has changed. David's ruling the land. He's got a new little boy named Solomon. Bathsheba and him are having a great time. But David's got some other kids 
that were ignored in a very crucial part of their life, that now they're into adulthood, and now they are as unleashed and without restraint as David previously had been. Uh, the, the trouble particularly begins to brew within David's house concerning his older children, uh, who no doubt suffered whenever he moved on with a new wife and, and had a, another child. David's oldest son, Amnon, becomes obsessed with his half-sister, Tamar, or Tamar. Uh, the Bible says that Amnon was consumed with lust for his half-sister. That Amnon is obsessed with her. Again, unnatural, ungodly, and all the things that we know that to be. But Amnon had, had this lust and he didn't know what to do with it. And he sets up an opportunity to get Tamar alone with him. And even though it was wrong, Amnon had watched his dad get what he wanted. So he gets what he wants. He takes Tamar. Tamar is scarred for life. She is devastated and she is exiled as a result because no one would want anything to do with her after what was just done to her by her older brother. David finds out what happens and the Bible says David does nothing. Because what do you do when your oldest son, the next in line to be king, does something so embarrassing? What do you do when your oldest son does something that reminds you of yourself? David chose not to clean the mess up. David chose just to let it go. Maybe that was passive of him, but that's what he did. The story goes that he had lost his moral authority, took his hands off the wheel, and for whatever reason, he did not even try to make things better. So the next chapter, the next stage of the story involves David's third child, his favorite son, Absalom. Absalom eventually takes Tamar into his own home, and he takes care of her. And for years, he plans something to get Amnon back. So he volunteers a couple years later, two years later, to host a big family reunion, uh, to, to have a big sheep shearing festival. And David says, I'm not going to come. My family's a mess. I don't want to deal with all this. It's bad press. Uh, Absalom says, I'll host the party. Hey, let me invite all the family over. So Amnon commits to come with his family. Uh, Tamar is going to be there. So he sets a big stage, has a big feast, and he murders Amnon in front of the entire city. Absalom says, my father would not punish Amnon, so I will. And I did. David is completely overwhelmed. And because of social pressure, he exiles Absalom from the land. His favorite son murdered his oldest son. He doesn't know what to do. Three years go by and David is more broken than ever. He is retired. He's completely resigned from the public, uh, uh, public view. He sends for his son to come home because he wants to see him, hoping that maybe things will be better. But David, the last minute, he worries about what people will say and he cowers and he refuses to see Absalom. But he gives Absalom a nice apartment and he sets him up and he gives him secret service and he says, okay, Absalom, I can't really be seen with you. I can't really associate with you because it's just a mess. I don't know what to do about all this. I, I really don't know how to fix it. So I'm just not going to do anything, which men, we know how that is. Sometimes we, we only deal with the things that we can fix. And if we can't fix it, we just ignore it. So David said, I'm just going to ignore it. Absalom, I built you a nice place. I've given you some protection. Just hopefully you can find a way to forgive me and we can move on with all this. And one day you might be king. Well, the story goes that Absalom does not want to be king. He does not want to be, uh, you know, all the privileges of being the prince. He wants a relationship with his dad. And he wants David to take responsibility of the mess that he's made. But David won't deal with it. So, da so Absalom goes to Joab's house, which is David's right-hand man, David's leader of the army. He goes to Joab's house and he sets his field on fire, which would have been where all the crops were being grown. And that got some attention. 
You should read your Bible. There's some incredible stories tucked away in God's word. Absalom sets Joab's field on fire. And Joab says, listen, your dad's unapproachable. Uh, He's not going to talk with you. So let me try to work things out. So Joab hires a woman to go and request the king's advice. She turns the tables on David and says, David, the scenario I asked you advice for is about you and your son. You need to reconcile with him before something else happens. David brings Absalom in, but he just can't get himself to embrace the mess he's made. He tries to make amends, but he just can't be mature. He can't man up to fix it. So Absalom says, okay, dad, I see how this is going to be. We're not going to have a relationship. That's fine. I'll take the privileges of being the prince. I'll go my merry way. You sit on your throne. I'll go and do my business and I'll be fine. But Absalom had a plan. He always did. He gets up every morning and sets a booth up in the gate of the city. And since David is absentee from his role of king, Absalom pretty much steals the hearts of the nation and builds a case for why David should be removed from the throne. Absalom spends a few years taking the nation out of favor from David and they begin to bend their knee to him. And everyone is in on his plot. Everybody is waiting for Absalom to sound the trumpet and stage the coup. The only people that would be surprised by this would be the men that were right at David's side, locked in the palace. So, 16 years after the affair that started the whole mess, David's life, already things had not gone how he thought they would go. Dreams are broken. Family is broken. David knows he's responsible in some ways. In other ways, he didn't have an option. It wasn't his fault. David's trying to figure out how to manage it all, trying to figure out where God was in it all. And and in this story that we're going to close with, David actually gets back to where he wanted to be. It took Absalom's insurrection to get David to finally and fully reconnect with God, to renew his heart for and faith in and make him realize just how confident he was in God. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 15. And follow along with me in the first six verses. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Absalom would rise early and stand beside the gate of the, the way of the gate. So it was when anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such tribe of Israel. And Absalom would say, look, your case is good and right. And there is no deputy of the king to hear you. The king sure isn't caring about you, but I, the king's son, I care about you. I'm here to help you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came to near, came near to bow to him, he would put his hand out and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel right in David's front yard. And David doesn't do anything. Absalom has his men in place all throughout the land, ready to blow trumpets that, to make known that he was staging a rebellion. Even one of David's most trusted advisors committed to help Absalom. Down in verse 10, 
Absalom sent spies throughout all the land of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron, which he would take one city at a time. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem and they went along innocently and did not know anything as in they pretended as if they were just along for the ride, but they knew that Absalom was staging something pretty spectacular. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, from, Gil, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. So now one of David's most trusted advisors has betrayed him and vows to help Absalom take the throne. So the story goes... Verse 13, now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So here's what David knows that means. The only way to stop Absalom is to fight Absalom. The only way to retain the throne is to fight his son. The only way to stay in power would be to stop his son from taking it. So David makes a decision. I will not fight my son. I will not kill my son. I've made a lot of selfish decisions. I took what wasn't mine. I killed the innocent. I watched my family fall apart because I did not do anything. But in this instance, I will not do anything once more because I will not fight my own son. I watched God take Saul out of power and give it to me. And if this is God's way of taking me out of power and giving it to Absalom, then that is how it's going to be. Verse 14, David said to his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, let us, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. But the story goes that they don't run away without people noticing. They literally walk down Main Street and walk out the gate. And David signifies for the entire city, I am leaving you. I am leaving this city because I do not want to see Absalom take it. And I do not want to see him take your life. So I am walking out so that you all might live. So David is now a fugitive again, not 20 years old anymore, mind you, like he was the first time. 61 years old, David is a fugitive. This was not his dream. This was not how it was supposed to work out, right? This was not what he expected. It was not what he was promised. It was not what he prayed for. His dream was broken. His dream unraveled and it could not be restored. You know, this is where a lot of us are. We're discouraged, we're confused, we're heartbroken, we're blindsided, betrayed, beaten in some way. We did all the stuff we knew to do, and yeah, we made some mistakes along the way, but wasn't it all supposed to work out? And we try to process it all. We often make things worse, right? We dig the hole deeper and trying to numb the pain, we add to the pain. But this wasn't the first time David was in this position. When he was younger, he took matters into his own hands, but he vowed to do things differently this time. Even though he has a whole caravan of men who promise him in verse 15, we are your servants ready to do whatever you command, as in we will fight to the death for you, David. But David says, no, we're not gonna do that. Not this time. Verse 23, and all the country wept with a loud voice, all the people, 
as all the people crossed over the, kid, the, 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 the gate out of the city. The king himself crossed over the brook Kidron or the Kidron Valley. And all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. There was Zadok, the high priest also, and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they sat down the Ark of the Covenant of God. And Abathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. So this is really where the nation begins to get concerned. Because the Ark of the Covenant was to them the presence of God. Where the ark went, God went. And the priesthood and the Levites, obviously on David's side, said, we've got to go with David. We could stay in the city, but what if God blesses Absalom because of the ark and because of the people? We need to move the ark because the, the history has shown God blesses wherever the ark is. The ark is his presence. The ark is his sanctuary. So if we take the ark with David, we'll send a message. God is with David. God is going to work this out for David. So if you want to be on God's side, you better take David's side. See, it was a way of controlling God, they thought. Battles had been won because the Ark of the Covenant were there. So when the people would have seen the Ark being taken, they would have been, it would have communicated that God was going to go with David. So David's supporters believed that obviously God was with David. Absalom was in the wrong. So they thought this was just the ideal way to do things, and they thought this would gain them support. But David did not, this did not sit well with David. So David says to Zadok, go back. What? David says, I want you to take the ark back. I want you in the priesthood. I want y'all to turn around and go back into the city. That David, this is how we win. If we take the ark with us and God is with us, Absalom loses. This is how we win. And David says, this is not about winning. Take the ark back. David, are you taking Absalom's side? David, are you condoning Absalom? No, I am not going to put the people that I love at risk. Not at all. Even if it means losing everything I've got, I will not manipulate God for my gain. One of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible is verse 25. The king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. What a monumental, megaton statement that could come out of anyone's mouth. David says, take the ark back. If God chooses to bring me back, he will. But if he says this is the end of David in his reign, that's what I want. Can you imagine the resolve it took? Can you imagine the mindset he had? If God chooses to bring me back, so be it. But I'm not taking matters into my own hands. Not my will. I've tried to force my will more than once, and it always messes things up. Not my will be done, but God's will be done. Can you imagine the scene when David said this? David lost his entire world. 
but he did not lose his faith. David's world was turned upside down, but his confidence in God was at an all-time high. Beginning empty-handed frightens even the most strong of men. But those that choose to do so and those that follow God into the wilderness reveal just how much confidence they have in God. David did not lose respect for God's will. He did not try to brute force his authority. He refused to try to take control. He lost his world, but he did not lose his faith. His dreams were abandoned. His destiny was altered. His desire was still to put God first. He chose not to abandon God when it appeared that God had chose to abandon him. David did not make this about himself. He trusted in the God who put him in the place and trusted that God would either bring him back or replace him. So the story goes that Absalom takes the capital, but he doesn't have the king. And he becomes obsessed with getting David's, throne, David's crown. And his advisors say, Absalom, if we're going to win this, you've got to have David's head. People are never going to respect you as king until you personally take your father's life. So Absalom, being driven by lust and for power, he becomes obsessed with finding David and he, bre- he declares war. He begins killing innocent people because maybe somebody is lying for David or hiding David. And then on the other side of the wilderness, David gets word of what's going, to ha- what's going on and David realizes he's gonna have to fight against Absalom's army if he's gonna save the people he loves. He didn't want to, he didn't want it to come to this, but he would not watch the nation burn in his absence. So David and his men route Absalom's troops into a forest where they had the upper hand and ultimately against David's will, but because it just had to happen this way, Absalom is killed. But they did not rejoice. They mourned. David mourns. It was necessary for the sake of the nation, but David was more broken than ever. He mourns for days. And finally, he resumes his life on the throne. And the next nine years of David's life, even though things are not as he would have dreamed for them to be, David is much more subdued. He lives a much more reserved life. But he spends the last nine years of his life with a peace that surpasses understanding. The reason he had that peace was not because he won some war, because there was no winner from that mess. But David had a peace because through all that, he never shifted his hope out of God and into the circumstances going the way he wanted them to go or the way he would have dreamed them to go. With or without his dreams coming true and the aftermath of so many broken dreams, David's heart was at peace because he had an unshakable hope. I'm sure he prayed for things to go differently, right? I'm sure he never intended any of this to happen. I want you to listen clearly. If you only hear this, this is so important. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayer. It's not getting what we ask for every single time or any time. The foundation of our faith is not happy endings. It's always a mistake. It's dangerous to wrap our confidence in God around fulfillment of our dreams to believe that God is only good based on the dreams or prayers that come true. 
Dreams that don't come true and prayers that don't get answered say nothing about God's presence, goodness, or faithfulness because those things are constants. They are not circumstantial. God is present and God is good and God is faithful regardless of our circumstances. And even if every dream we have ever dreamed unravels, that does not say anything about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And if we have confused God's goodness and faithfulness, if we have wrapped God's goodness and faithfulness around something we dream coming true, we have a dangerous understanding of who God really is. David reminds us today that when we feel forsaken, we are mistaken. To assume that circumstances uh, reveal that God is or isn't real or is or isn't good or is or isn't trustworthy is totally off base. And we're invited to join David in the statement that he made in verse 25 and 26. If I find favor, he will bring me back. But if he says, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Not my will be done, thy will be done. I know how I want things to go. I know how I've prayed for things to go. I may lose my world and I will not lose my faith though. I will not abandon God even if it feels like I've been abandoned. That same day, David leaves the city. The Bible says David ascended to the Mount of Olives and goes to a garden to pray. And in that garden, he hears word that his most trusted advisor has betrayed him. Now you've heard that story before, but it takes place a thousand years later when Jesus goes up that same mountain, right? but a preview here in the story of David. The scripture says that in verse 30, David went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives and he wept as he went. He had his head covered and went barefoot and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. Someone told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, oh Lord, I pray, turn that counsel into foolishness. It happened when David came to the top of the mountain, he worshiped God. And a stranger appears, Hushai the archite, comes to meet him, promising him help. There's no other mention of Hushai in the Bible. His name does not relate to a tribe. His name simply means someone of old. Maybe Hushai was more than a man, but we do know this. David knelt in the same place that Jesus would kneel later. He worshiped and prayed, not my will, but thy will be done. It was in this season of his life that David penned the words in Psalm 25. In you, O Lord, in you, Lord God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all the day long. My confidence is in you alone. Let me ask you this. What do you hope in and what do you hope for each day? What are you expecting or waiting on to bring you joy and peace in any given day? Is it something happening to you? Is it something being given to you? Is it somebody doing something for you or to you or with you? Or is it in the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the promise of God to you that he is in control and you can trust him and that he has you in his hand? If your hope is in anything other than God and his plans for you, it is not sustainable and it is not dependable. And to put a little summertime theme on it, hope that is in anyone or anything other than God alone will not float. You will sink 
if your hope is in anybody else or anything else. We will never enjoy reality until we shift our hope completely in and on God. Many of us are bitter and sour because things didn't go like we planned for them to go. Maybe without even realizing it, we've shifted our hope out of God and into some other area of, our life, of the world. Maybe you haven't complained to God, but you're bitter and disappointed with life. We haven't thanked God for where we are because we wish we were somewhere else or with somebody else or in something other circumstances. We might be tolerating our current place, but we're definitely not celebrating it. Until you begin to worship God for where his plans have brought you and where his redemption plan can bring you, you'll never have the peace and joy and spirit that God promises you can have. What did David have to worship God for when he lost everything? God had not left him and he had not lost him. The fact is so many of us are grumbling or wallowing in what might have been, what could have been, but here we are and God is still with us. And if we lean into that moment, we realize that God has us right where he wants us to be and we can quit living on the what ifs and the if onlys. There's a joy and a peace available to you right now. It only comes from a heart that is totally resting and depending on God that says, not my dreams, not my plans, not my will, but God. God's alone. And don't just accept God's plans. Rejoice in them. Seek out the joy he has for you in them. God promises from his word. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for peace and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. But they, not, they are not always and most likely will never be what you dream up. God is not just tending to us. He's taking us somewhere. The very thought that we know better is a sign that we believe that we are more capable than God. Many of us live in rebellion because we're still pretending to believe in a God, yet we don't believe that God's will is best. No wonder we don't feel anything because we don't really believe in anything. It's time we confess our dissatisfaction and come to God and confess our distrust and seek out the good and delight that God has for us, his plans for us, they're always better. He will not let us down. Proverbs 16, 9, David's son wrote, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Plans are great, but God's plans are greater. Not just that they take precedent, but that God's plans are greater. It may feel like you've lost something in the process of God taking you where he wants you to go, but God has nothing but gain for you. Even if you feel like you're at fault for some things that happen, God's redemption plan is here to restore you and build you back better than before. Yes, there may be consequences, but God's plans for you are good. He is trustworthy no matter what. So today, let's take hold of a hope that floats, a hope that never lets us down, a hope that is in God alone. Let's worship him where we are. Let's discover that he has something for us. He will always be with us. You know, I didn't plan for this to be on a rainy day, but I'm glad it's raining today. Because even though it's rainy, God is still reigning above us. On the days that it rains in life, on the days that it storms in life, God is still Lord of all. He is in control. Hope in him, hope in him alone. He is our heart's true source of joy and peace. Our praise does not depend on our plans happening or coming true. Our praise depends on God's plan because they are good, because he is good always. 
So I don't know what you're facing today or what you're going through today, but I think the first step to take in finding out where God wants to take you and what God wants to do for you in the situation you're in is to start worshiping him right now. Not if things change or when things change or if things go back to the way they used to be. Worship the Lord right now where you are because that is a way of declaring to the flesh, to your soul, to all the world, your hope is in God and God alone. And your true delight will come from him, not anything or anyone else. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this reminder from the story of David. When things didn't go as he dreamed them to go and planned for them to go and wanted them to go, he did not lose his faith in God. He did not quit believing even whenever things quit going as he imagined them to go. Lord, somebody today might would confess that they're not happy and they're not satisfied with what has happened in their life Maybe they're angry at you, they're angry at somebody, but they just don't have the peace and the joy that they wish they could have. And maybe they're waiting on things to change, but regardless of if things change or not, you are saying to them, I am here with you right now. In the beginning of that restoration, the beginning of our redemption is when we call on you and worship you where we are, facing what we face, trusting that you are good no matter what. Lord, would you lift up our spirits? Would you encourage us? Maybe that one that has never put their faith in Jesus and they realize that he's got a plan for them. He loves them and he's in control and his goodness is not based on what they see or what they feel, but it's based on his heart and his desire to know them. Lord, would you bring us all to a place of renewal and a place of rededication today that we might would say our hope is in God alone. We raise our worship to you today because you are worthy no matter what. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.